This is Conceptions and Misconceptions in Studying the Gospels with Dr. Dan Gertner. I'm your host, Tyler Sanders, and today we are looking at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Uh, Dr. Gertner, could you tell us a little bit about uh, a little bit about this passage? Well, what we're looking at in this passage is something that uh, sort of continues from our conversation last time and is not so much about the content of this passage, but more about the issue of textual criticism. That mm. is, uh, maybe why why did my grandma or, or, or why did I learn in Sunday school uh, to memorize the Lord's Prayer with a little bit of a tail ending on the end of this prayer that isn't in my Bible? Where'd that come from? Yeah. And why don't I see it in my the study Bible I just got from the bookstore? Right. So how does that get there and why isn't it here? So we're yeah. going to go back to some of that kind of conversation because this has to do with how manuscripts are passed along. And last time we talked about the longer ending of the Gospel of Mark, and that was a big issue because that was a large passage right. that addressed an issue where it seemed like Mark wasn't quite done yet. And some well-intending people thought, well, I'm going to sort of fill out this. And it yeah. sort of sounds like Matthew's Great Commission, but we saw how it didn't quite fit. And the verses 9 through 20 are not original to Mark. Um, and we discussed some of, well, uh, probably there's debates about whether Mark intended to leave it like that and so forth. This is, these are variants of different kinds. Yeah. Um, because as we've talked about, these are all manuscripts that are passed on from one scribe to the next all by hand. So, um, we're going to talk today about how these kinds of, uh, variants, these different, uh, words and phrases end up in our Bibles, uh, going from one manuscript to the next. You know, it's funny because I, uh, when we were talking about this topic, we finished last episode recording it and we talked about what we we're going to talk about in this episode. And I was kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, that'd be really cool. And then when I looked at it, I was kind of like, oh, wait, maybe I'm just looking at the wrong thing because it was so ingrained in my head that last phrase. I was just expecting to read it, and then I was like, oh, I must be looking at the wrong thing before I even I even realized that that was basically the topic of what we were talking about. Right, because it's, uh, it's not in a lot of our Bibles anymore. Yeah. But it is in uh, King James. Mm -hmm. So what I'm looking at is in uh, Matthew 6.13. Matthew 6.13 in the ESV says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And it simply ends there. Yeah. But if you read this in the King James, it says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Mm -hmm. Well, where does that for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, come from? Well, let me step back as we did last time and talk about manuscripts and how they're, they're passed along. And generally, um, there are uh, 
there are different kinds of manuscripts. The most important ones are the papyri, which are just basically ancient paper. We don't have a lot of those, but they tend to be old and reliable. Uh, And they tend to be in bits. Um, The ones that are the largest and have the most are these big codices, these big books. And we have three of those called uh, Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus, and Codex Alexandrinus. They're from the 4th and 5th century. And in some cases, I'm, I'm working in the Gospel of Matthew right now. These are the most complete parts and the earliest parts. And in the Gospel of Matthew, up, up until chapter 5, in some places, this is the only parts of Matthew we have. Up it, it, The earliest parts um, found in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus. If it weren't for these two, we wouldn't even know that Ma- we wouldn't know that Matthew exists until something like the sixth or seventh century. Really, these these manuscripts are that important. Wow. Now, so these manuscripts have all kinds of New Testament and Old Testament books in Greek and some of the Church Fathers, and there are people who've devoted large portions. Some of them, I was emailing with uh, a fellow recently who just finished his PhD at Cambridge University just studying one of these codices. Wow. His whole PhD on Codex Vaticanus. So 4th or 5th century AD. So what do you do a PhD on Codex Vaticanus on? He studied to see um, how many different scribes worked on this on this codex. And studied the handwriting. You can study it to see how they divided it up the the paragraphs and the thought mm. units yeah. because it, the way some of these these codices and codex codex is just a word for book mm-hmm. uh, instead of scroll they were in book what we consider book form yeah uh, a lot of these are just all in capital letters and all squeezed together with no punctuation and no sentence breaks nothing and just put into columns. But sometimes they'll break it up into paragraphs, and that tells you how people interpret things. Yeah. Um, And sometimes whenever a scribe is working on copying these, there there can be two or three scribes working on a manuscript. Inevitably, somebody else comes along later on and finds a mistake. So this this fellow has studied this and is able to identify the correctors how many wow. correctors there were, and when they can date from. So if the manuscript comes from the 5th century, maybe one of the correctors comes from the 7th century. And oh, another one comes from the 10th century. Yeah. And another one comes from the 13th century. Well, how do these correctors work? What they do is they make little notes in the margins. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they'll, so they, they didn't have uh, erasers. Um, so how, how do you make corrections to manuscripts when all these letters are squeezed together? There's just no room. Sometimes they jot things in the margins on the side. Sometimes they jot things on the top. But sometimes also, these are, these are oftentimes Christian scribes. You know, you and I are in church and we, we, see, we hear something from the preacher and it's really moving and we'd say amen. 
So sometimes a a scribe would come across an especially moving portion of a passage, and they'd add some pious comment, like, amen. Oh, wow. So actually, one of the variants in this passage at Matthew 5, 13, at the end says, amen. There are four manuscript traditions that have amen. So somebody mm-hmm. just has probably put, well, at the end of a prayer, we always have amen. So maybe yeah. a scribe put that in the margin. Now the next scribe who gets that manuscript sees amen in the margin, and he doesn't know if the scribe who put that there is yeah. just being uh, pious yeah. or if he thinks that that's that's a correction yeah, yeah some or maybe that or is something. a correction and yeah. so whenever he makes his copy from the one in front of him he makes that part of his his the manuscript that he's copying right right because that's his job is to just copy what's in front of him and so the copy that he makes that he sends off to whoever's paying him to make this copy for their church or churches or city or country or whoever he's making it for all of a sudden, they have a whole reading that in the Lord's Prayer suddenly has amen at the end of it. Yeah. Now, what we have here in the Lord's Prayer is at the end of this, we have this in, in several manuscripts beginning around the ninth century. This is when this starts. We have this addition. Uh and to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Um, churches, I, I'm, I don't know enough church history to say when, started developing a schedule of when they read certain passages hmm. in the church. Yeah. Why? Because people didn't have their own Bibles at home like you and I do. Yeah. And many of them didn't know how to read anyhow. So it really mm-hmm. wouldn't have done them any good. So if you wanted to get any Bible, you needed to go to church. So the church had a schedule of what they read in public. We Mm -hmm. call those liturgies. Yeah. And part of the liturgy was often putting um, some kind of phrase or statement or doxological statement at the end of a reading. Mm. And that's what this is. This is a doxology that's added to the end of a liturgy. Well, where did this come from? Uh, This came from, it's a paraphrase from another prayer. Right. And that other prayer is actually from King David. So here's where we go back to 1 Chronicles. Mm -hmm. So I'm in 1 Chronicles 29, 11 through 13. First Chronicles 29, 11 through 13. So this is a prayer from King David. So King David, about a thousand BC, said this prayer. So jump it back a little bit. Uh, jump it back one verse. Says uh, First Chronicles 29, verse 10. Says, therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, now I'm reading the ESV, blessed are you, 
O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Now I'm going to read verse 11, 11 through 13, and see if this sounds familiar. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. So this is an English translation of the Hebrew. Yeah. And the um, scribes here are taking uh, from the Greek, but you can see how they paraphrased yeah. uh, for and added that as a doxology onto the end of the Lord's Prayer. The uh, In the English, yours is the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. But what happened here is somewhere along the line, around again, around the ninth century, some Christians had added this in a church liturgy, and yours be the glory forever and ever, amen, uh, onto the Lord's Prayer. And some scribe put it in a manuscript in the liturgy somewhere, and somehow it was written, probably written in a margin somewhere, and some scribes or scribes seeing it written in the margin, thought it belonged as part of the actual text and not right. just sort of a commentary or a liturgy or a doxological statement. And as they copied their text, it sort of got sucked into the body of the text itself. And all of a sudden, we have it as part of our uh, the manuscripts from which translations like the King James start to be made. And again, these are very late. So this is this is again yeah. the earliest the earliest manuscript evidence is the ninth century. Um but that's how it ends up coming into our Bible. But this is pretty common in terms of how um variations in manuscript readings work. Yeah. No, this I guess became fairly widespread. Uh right? This uh the, this kind of edition. This kind of edition? Um I don't know if it became fairly widespread. This particular edition um, is pretty well known. Mm -hmm. um, and it becomes pretty traditional, especially in areas where the King James Bible has been used. Simply because it's the same reason why the, um, the Lord's Prayer is largely translated into English the same way, even though... Um, it's not the best translation, largely mm. because it is traditionally, the, this is like the, the yeah. ESV still translates it very similarly to the King James, even yeah. though if they could do it completely fresh, they would probably translate it differently, largely because it is still kind of familiar. Yeah, there's Our, a familiarity. There is a familiarity there. Uh, wow, similarly to how we saw last time when we, we saw like the ESV sort of said, we, we really wouldn't do this, but people are used to seeing it. So we're going to keep yeah. it. Um, yeah. there it's, it's more of a cultural familiarity because of the huge influence that the King James has had. 
that, that it is familiar. It is not necessarily because um, it is seen as um, a viable uh, reading in terms of ri- originality. It is not original. And, and mm-hmm. few see this as an original original reading. Um, but it is one that is uh, with which people are very familiar, again, simply because it's it's been part of the King James for so long. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting. I was looking at it through my ESV study Bible, and it, it's not it's not in there. Um, but there's there's a note, you know, like a footnote kind of about it um, that kind of explains a little bit about that. Um, but I did think that's kind of a, a fascinating difference, really, than with the uh, the longer ending of Mark, where it is, you know, they kind of have it in there, and then they they bracket it and kind of tell you here's. You know, this is in here, but there's an important footnote at the bottom, and this is almost the opposite, where it's it's kind of dropped out, um, but there's a reference to it. If you're maybe expecting it, you'll you'll kind of come across and, it. And and my guess is that the editors they wouldn't have even put it in a footnote if it weren't for the fact that people are expecting it, right? Um, because there are other variants that are more textually viable in terms of originality than this one. Mm. Um, but this one is one that is so familiar, again, because of the influence of the King James, that yeah. people are expecting it. Hey, where is my, why is the, my Lord's Prayer so short? Um, they're right. going to be looking for a footnote or some explanation. Yeah. And I think it's said in the the study Bible, the ESV study Bible, that it's basically not in most modern translations, but I would assume right. it's probably still in an old King James. It It would be simply because the manuscripts on which the King James are based, which are largely late manuscripts, uh, does does preserve it. Yeah. Now, could you tell me a little bit about why they use those manuscripts for the King James? Is that kind of just yeah. what they had available? Uh, because that's simply what they had available as of uh, 1611. Mm-hmm. So it, it's simply a case that whenever the King James Bible was made, it was based on a collation of Greek manuscripts that were um, that was available at that time. Uh, and since then, we have a lot more um, yeah. diversity of manuscripts and a lot earlier manuscripts. Um, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't really matter how many manuscripts. It's not really mm. majority rules as much as uh, how early they are and how reliable they are. Because as we talked about before, they could be early and they could be based on, um, you know, manuscripts that have errors in them. But if they're early and they're diverse, if they're early and they're copied from other exemplars, other, if if you have a copy that's copied from mine, that really doesn't represent two different witnesses but if you Mm. if you have a copy that's copied from somebody else and i have a copy that's copied from somebody else uh that and they've never they've never had any interaction with each other at all um that's good because they're they're independent of one another that represents a kind of diversity of traditions um and they say the same thing that shows a kind of stability um and so what we have now that they didn't have in 1611 is is early and diverse manuscripts um and uh, a kind of sophistication in studying those manuscripts that they simply didn't have then now this so, may be kind of a hard question to answer off the top of your head but 
you know, there's been a shift um, because, you know, now we really try to get, uh, like you said, this broad diversity of manuscripts and we're trying to pull information from all of them to try to work back to the original text. But in the early church, they were using, they were probably just getting whatever copy they could get their hands on, right? I mean, whatever manuscript you could get. When did that shift start to happen where people started to collect, um, you know, multiple multiple manuscripts and try to pull it together to try to come up with something that's closer to the original. That's it. That's a difficult question. Uh, I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer that. And I'm also not sure. I mean, even the question now there's debates as to what, what really is an original. Um, um, and it has to do with the writing process in antiquity. Did, did authors sit down and write one copy of Galatians, for example, and then say, okay, go. Or uh, in some circles in the Greco-Roman context, they would write drafts and Mm. uh, circulate it for discussion and debate and get it back and get some input and then circulate it again. And then at what point does sending or publishing count? Yeah. Um, Yeah. When is it set? When is it set and when is it when is it done? So some people are talking now about the not necessarily the original but the earliest recoverable text. Um, and when do they start collating manuscripts? I think that the notion of collating and collecting manuscripts is something that's probably um, pretty uh, pretty recent. Simply because I mean, recent by by recent I mean probably. Um, Certainly, something that would that would be post enlightenment, I would think, hmm. um, simply because that kind of thinking, in comparison, is it seems more more like an enlightenment kind of idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I'm not really sure when yeah. when that kind of thing would have originated. Certainly, in the early church, even um, w- with literacy rates being low and accessibility to books being low and the circulation of, of letters being a a high priority, but um, not necessary, but, but by and large being a luxury, it's difficult Mm. to say um, how they would, if, and when they would compare the, the wording of one manuscript versus the wording of another manuscript. There was certainly the, one of the concerns is we see, let's just say, for example, in, in the book of Second Thessalonians, which becomes also an issue later into the second and third century, is the issue not of the wording, but of the authenticity. In mm-hmm. other words, I, I'm thinking of when Paul says, um, talking to the Thessalonians about, you know, there's concern in Thessalonica about whether the day of the Lord has already come. And the Thessalonians uh, are, Paul tells the Thessalonians, do not be concerned about some uh, report or letter alleged to have come from us, saying mm-hmm. that the day of the Lord has already come. So there's somebody who is claiming to come to the Thessalonians saying, hey, the day of the Lord has already come. Yeah. So by the way, you don't have to work anymore. Right. So now there are these people in Thessalonica who say, hey, the day of the Lord has already come. I don't have to work. You guys do what you want. I'll live off of you. And so they have this sort of over-realized eschatology. Yeah. And Paul says, so his whole point in Second Thessalonians and talking about 
what to expect in the day of the Lord is that, look, here's proof that the, the second coming hasn't occurred yet, and don't believe these reports. So the, the concern is less about compare this manuscript and that manuscript than did Paul really say this or is somebody claiming yeah. to say this in Paul's name? Right, right. Now, uh, because it's such a familiar passage, um, how do you think uh, you would like respond to someone in your church who who comes and kind of asks you this about about the Lord's Prayer passage? Yeah, yeah. They're like, I expected, I, you know, or I grew up with King James, and it's in there, and I'm looking at like, you know, we use NIV or ESV or NASB, whatever it is, and it's it's not in there. I, I would go back to the the. The thing we talked about the other day with it's not a question about the trustworthiness of scripture or mm. or the reliability of scripture. It's a question about which is which is the reliable reading. In other words, scripture is reliable. It's just is this part scripture or is that part is this part not scripture? And what I'm saying is that extended part is not part of the original Lord's Prayer. Yeah. And ironically, it is part of or drawn from part of Scripture. It's just drawn from another part of Scripture. So mm-hmm. it, it's it's simply a case of that that simply doesn't belong there, and it was it was it was added at some point early on in the church. So on the one hand, um, I understand how people could feel a little rattled that hey, I thought this was this was Scripture, and now and I memorized this when I was ten. And yeah. now you're telling me that's not even scripture. On the other hand, um, we can celebrate the fact that what what we do recognize is this is part of a, a tradition that was drawn from scripture that goes back 1,100 years. So mm-hmm. what you've memorized, yeah, that's not from scripture. But you just memorize something that goes back to a heritage of the Christian faith from another side of the planet over a thousand years ago of how the Bible was used in church services for people in a part of the world that probably couldn't even read. Yeah. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's not bad that you know it. Right. Exactly. That's a good point. It's not bad that you know it. um, And it doesn't assault the trustworthiness of Scripture. Yeah. Um, It just helps us to see, again, that um, we we build our faith on the trustworthiness of God through his word. And we recognize that God chose to preserve his word through our through a human process. And we also recognize that as trustworthiness, as trustworthy as God's word is, our relationship is is through is, is to a person. Uh, not not to a book. I yeah. mean, I believe in the full inerrancy of Scripture with all my heart and all the bells and whistles that go with that. I'm about as conservative as you, as you can get with that. Yeah. But that is not the end. That is yeah. a means to the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love the Scriptures. I think it was John Piper who said, I love Scriptures like I love my eyes because they help mm-hmm. me to see beautiful things. Yeah. Um. And I think it's really helpful. Yeah. Um, so we got to be careful about where we place our our hope in the way we understood something that was maybe not quite right. And that that's okay. We, we yeah. have to be open to learning about the way things are and put our hope 
in better places. Yeah, that's really good. Well, I appreciate that. I think that was a great wrap up. Actually, um, that's a that's a good uh, that's a good nugget to chew on. I think so. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Doctor Gertner. My pleasure.